Chapter Two of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter Two. So our little family, consisting of myself, my wife Mary, and my daughter Henrietta, for daughter I shall persist in calling her started for Wales in the afternoon of the 27th of July, 1854. We flew through part of Norfolk and Cambridgeshire in a train which we left at Ely, and getting into another which did not fly quite so fast as the one we had quieted, reached the Peterborough station at about six o'clock of a delightful evening. We proceeded no further on our journey that day, in order that we might have an opportunity of seeing the cathedral. Sallying arm in arm from the station hotel, where we had determined to take up our quarters for the night, we crossed a bridge over the deep, quiet Nen, on the southern bank of which stands the station, and soon arrived at the cathedral. Unfortunately we were too late to procure admission into the interior, and had to content ourselves with walking round it, and surveying its outside. It is named after, and occupies the site, or part of the site, of an immense monastery, founded by the Mercian king Pedda in the year 665, and destroyed by fire in the year 1116, which monastery, though originally termed Mead Shamstead, or the homestead of the Meads, was subsequently termed Peterborough, from the circumstance of its having been reared by the old Saxon monarch for the love of God and the honour of St. Peter, as the Saxon chronicle says, a book which I went through carefully in my younger days, when I studied Saxon, for, as I have already told the reader, I was in those days a bit of a philologist. Like the first, the second edifice was originally a monastery, and continued so till the time of the Reformation. Both were abodes of learning, for if the Saxon chronicle was commenced in the monkish cells of the first, it was completed in those of the second. What is at present called Peterborough Cathedral is a noble, venerable pile, equal upon the whole in external appearance to the cathedrals of Toledo, Burgos, and Leon, all of which I have seen. Nothing in architecture can be conceived more beautiful than the principal entrance, which fronts the west, and which, at the time we saw it, was gilded with the rays of the setting sun. After having strolled about the edifice, surveying it until we were weary, we returned to our inn, and after taking an excellent supper, retired to rest. At ten o'clock next morning we left the capital of the Medes. With dragon speed and dragon noise, fire, smoke and fury, the train dashed along its road through beautiful meadows, garnished here and there with pollard sallows, over pretty streams whose waters stole along imperceptibly, by venerable old churches, which I vowed I would take the first opportunity of visiting, stopping now and then to recruit its energies at places whose old Anglo-Saxon names stared me in the eyes from station-boards, as specimens of which let me only dot down Willie Thorpe, Ringstead, and Earthling Borrow. Quite forgetting everything Welsh, I was enthusiastically Saxon the whole way from Mead-Shamstead to Blissworth. So thoroughly Saxon was the country, with its rich meads, its old churches, and its names. After leaving Blissworth, a thoroughly Saxon place, by the by, as its name shows, 
signifying the stronghold or possession of Bly or Blee, I became less Saxon. The country was rather less Saxon, and I caught occasionally the word by on the board, the Danish for a town, which by waked in me a considerable portion of Danish enthusiasm, of which I have plenty, and with reason, having translated the glorious Kemp Visa over the desk of my ancient master, the gentleman solicitor of East Anglia. At length we drew near the great workshop of England, called by some Brummagung, or Bromwichum, by others Birmingham, and I fell into a philological reverie, wondering which was the right name. Before, however, we came to the station, I decided that both names were right enough, but that Bromwichum was the original name, signifying the home of the Brumy Moor, which name is lost in polite parlance for Birmingham, or the home of the son of Biama, when a certain man of Danish blood, called Biaming, or the son of Biama, got possession of it, whether by force, fraud, or marriage. The latter, by the by, is by far the best way of getting possession of an estate. This deponent neither knoweth nor careth. At Birmingham Station I became a modern Englishman, enthusiastically proud of modern England's science and energy. That station alone is enough to make one proud of being a modern Englishman. Oh, what an idea does that station, with its thousand trains dashing off in all directions, or arriving from all quarters, give of modern English science and energy. My modern English pride accompanied me all the way to Tipton, for all along the route there were wonderful evidences of English skill and enterprise. In chimneys high as cathedral spires, vomiting forth smoke, furnaces emitting flame and lava, and in the sound of gigantic hammers, wielded by steam, the Englishman's slave. After passing Tipton, at which place one leaves the great working district behind, I became for a considerable time a yawning, listless Englishman, without pride, enthusiasm, or feeling of any kind, from which state I was suddenly roused by the sight of ruined edifices on the tops of hills. They were remains of castles built by Norman barons, here perhaps the reader will expect from me a burst of Norman enthusiasm. If so, he will be mistaken. I have no Norman enthusiasm, and hate and abominate the name of Normans, for I have always associated that name with the deflowering of helpless Englishwomen, the plundering of English homesteads, and the tearing out of poor Englishmen's eyes. The sight of those edifices now in ruins, which were once the strongholds of plunder, violence, and lust, made me almost ashamed of being an Englishman, for they brought to my mind the indignities of which poor English blood has been subjected. I sat silent and melancholy. Still looking from the window, I caught sight of a long line of hills, which I guessed to be the Welsh hills, for indeed they proved, which sight, causing me to remember that I was bound for Wales, the land of the Bard, made me cast all gloomy thoughts aside, and glow with all the Welsh enthusiasm, with which I glowed when I first started in the direction of Wales. On arriving at Chester, at which place we intended to spend two or three days, we put up at an old-fashioned inn in Northgate Street, to which we had been recommended. My wife and daughter ordered tea and its accompaniments, and I ordered ale, and that which always should accompany it, cheese. The ale I shall find bad, said I. Chester ale had a villainous character in the time of old Sean Tudor, 
who made a first-rate angling upon it, and it has scarcely improved since. But I shall have a treat in the cheese. Cheshire cheese has always been reckoned excellent, and now that I am in the capital of the cheese country, of course I shall have some of the very prime. Well, the tea, loaf, and butter made their appearance, and with them my cheese and ale. To my horror, the cheese had much the appearance of soap of the commonest kind, which indeed I found it much resembled in taste, on putting a small portion into my mouth. Ah, said I, after I had opened the window and ejected the half-masticated morsel into the street, those who wish to regale on good Cheshire cheese must not come to Chester. No more than those who wish to drink first-rate coffee must go to Mocha. I'll now see whether the ale is drinkable. So I took a little of the ale into my mouth, and instantly going to the window spurted it out after the cheese. Of a surety, said I, Chester ale must be of much the same quality as it was in the time of Sean Tudor, who spoke of it in the following effect. Chester ale, Chester ale, I could ne'er get it down. Tis made of ground ivy, of dirt and of bran. Tis as thick as a river below a huge town. Tis not lap for a dog, far less drink for a man. Well, if I have been deceived in the cheese, I have at any rate not been deceived in the ale, which I expected to find execrable. Patience! I shall not fall into a passion, more especially as there are things I can fall back upon. Wife, I will trouble you for a cup of tea. Henrietta, have the kindness to cut me a slice of bread and butter. Upon the whole we found ourselves very comfortable in the old-fashioned inn, which was kept by a nice old-fashioned gentlewoman, with the assistance of three servants, namely a boots, two strapping chambermaids, one of which was a Welsh girl, with whom I soon scraped acquaintance, not, I assure the reader, for the sake of the pretty Welsh eyes which she carried in her head, but for the sake of the pretty Welsh tongue which she carried in her mouth, from which I confess occasionally proceeded sounds which, however pretty, I was quite unable to understand. End of chapter 2